0: All right? I've got good news and bad news. The good news is we get to study the Word of God together tonight, and I'm looking forward to that. The bad news is I don't have one of those cool accents for y'all, so this is just how it's going to be. I know a lot of people are transforming this week, but it just will be how it will be. So the way these classes will work, I know the young people will be doing what they're doing until about 8 o'clock, but what we'll do in here is we'll just teach until we're done. And so if we're done in 30 minutes or so, then we'll be done, and if we go longer than that, then that's fine. Now, last night we talked about God in the various classes, and the whole theme this week is the kingdom of God. And you could think about some of the uh, ways God's described in the Bible. Think about some of the attributes about God. For example, Genesis 1 says God's the what? In the beginning, God did what? Created the heavens and the earth, right? And so God's a creator. The Bible describes God that way. But the Bible also describes God as a redeemer. You think about the Psalms, like Psalm 107 and verse 2 says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So God's a redeemer. And there is a host of other descriptions about God. God's eternal, Psalm 90 and verse 2, or that you could just think on and on about. But last night we studied God in what aspect? What aspect of God did we talk about last night? Do y'all remember? Starts with K, ends with Ng. There we go. Y'all were, y'all were on it. Good. Good. So God's a king. The Bible says God's a king. In First Chronicles 29, about verses 10 through 13, David prays, and he praises God for being a king. Now, here's what I want to know. Why does the Bible, there's one God, right? And he's the same God, the triune God. you got God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. Why does the Bible see fit to describe God zeroing in on these various attributes? For example, God as creator, God as redeemer, God as deliverer, sometimes he's called, or even God as king. Why does the Bible give these various aspects about God and who he is, these different designations? Why do you think that's the case? He's totally everything, that's right. Why else though? Why these different attributes about God or these different designations? Why do you think? He's supreme in all those things. God has no equal. That's right as well. Know what about him? Know what about him, Gary? Mm-hmm. That he's everlasting. Okay. Yeah. Russell, what do you, what were you got? What do you have on that? Describes his character. Anybody else? Why the Bible uses different designations for God? He fulfills all the needs. All the needs. More on that momentarily. Fulfilling all the needs, David. She's, She's stoked. stoked. That's how it happens. That's how it always goes that way. He's gotten all those ways. And I would add one more thing. The Bible describes God using those various attributes because there will be times in your life and in my life when they're always true. All of those things about God are true. But there are going to be times in our lives where we need to remember. God's the creator, and we need to zero in on this specific attribute. There will be times where we're in ter- terrible situations, and we need to remember: oh, God's everything, but He's a redeemer. We need to remember in certain times in our lives when the world's out of control, and we say, "I don't know what's going to come next." God's a king. He's the only king, the king of kings. When the Bible says king of kings, that means if you were to put all the kings who have ever existed in the world, they would drop their crowns in his presence, too, because he's the king of kings. So there would be different times in our lives when you and I need to appreciate all those things. But there are certain seasons and times when we need to focus in on maybe one of those specific promises. And there it is in the Bible. The Bible could just say, well, God's God of everything. That's true. That would be true. But God seeks to, in his word, describe himself using specific designations because that's how our lives are lived. There are specific times in our lives when we need to really hone in and zero in on one of those characteristics or attributes. And it'll help us be God's people. And the same way it is with God. And this is what we're going to do tonight. So it is with us as God's people. Now, if God is God and he is and he has these various designations, we shouldn't be surprised to read the New Testament and find that God has various ways of describing us. So I want you to start thinking in your mind about the various ways that God describes his people in the New Testament. He uses a lot and we can fill up this board, but let's just try to see. I'm going to take the first one and the easiest one off the board first or on the board, really, or off the board. I don't know. All right. The first one is Christians. This is our favorite way to describe ourselves, or we typically use this designation. We'll describe ourselves as Christians, right? And let's talk about some of these. Acts 11:26. What does this mean? This word appears three times in the New Testament. Acts 11:26, 26, Acts 26:28, 26, and First Peter 4:16. You find the word Christian. Paul and Barnabas went to the church at Antioch. The Bible says they assemble with the church a whole year, and the disciples are first called Christians in Antioch. When we describe ourselves as the people of God, most times we describe ourselves as what? Christians, right? Yes or yes. Yes, we do. Right. We say Christ. now, what is a Christian? What do we mean by Christian? What does that mean? What does this word mean? Followers of Christ, Followers of Christ. those aligned with Jesus Christ. That's what it means. And it's a good designation. We should use it. Now, what else does the Bible say about us as the people of God? How else are we described? Can you think of some others? Children. children. All right. So you got the children of God now. You might think, and I'm going to maybe give a passage or two for these. Ephesians 5, 1 says, be followers of God as dear children. Or 1 John 3, 1 through 3 says, now we don't know what we'll be yet, but when he appears, we'll be like him. Beloved, we're the sons of God, children of God. Now, is it true that the world in general, everybody who draws breath is a son or daughter of God? Is that true? You agree with that? Everybody in the world is God's child? True or false? False. Show of hands for true. Show of hands for false. Show of hands for, I'm not competing in your little survey, Hiram. Okay, good, good, okay. So, it's true. In a general sense, Hebrews 12 and verse 9 says, He's the Father of spirits. Everybody with the Spirit belongs to God. But in a special sense, Christians are what? Children of God. More on that as we get into the crux of our lesson tonight. But there's a specific sense in which we call on God as father. What else do we have in the New Testament? So we've got Christians. We've got children. What else? Heirs. Heirs? Let's leave that one aside. That'll be what we're going to talk about tonight. But heirs is exactly right. That'll be the last one. What else do we have, though? Sheep. Okay. Yeah. In John 10, I believe it's verse 11, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and the sheep, they hear my voice. They know me. Somebody else said we are his what? Servant. Servants. What do we want to hear at the end of life? Well done, good and faithful servant. Matthew 25, 21, Jesus says, that's how it's going to be in the end. There's going to be a there'll be sheep and there'll be what on the other side? Goats. You don't want to be. a. Sh-. They didn't sing it tonight, but I don't want to be. a. am sh- not going to make you sing it. Don't worry. But there is the song. You know, the song, right? you want to be a sheep the term the new testament most often uses is this term when it talks about those that belong to Jesus it calls us disciples now what is a disciple it's in acts 11:26 when you find christian it's also disciple the disciples are first called christians in antioch acts 11:26 It's in Acts 15 and verse 10. The disciples are found there. And when Saul was persecuting the church in Acts 9 and verse 1, it says he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples. What's a disciple? A follower. Yes, but there's something else a little bit more specific. If you say I'm a disciple and well, we'll we'll save, save that part for later. But what is a disciple It's more than a follower, a student, a pupil, an understudy. A disciple is somebody who is um, an apprentice. That's what it is. That's a disciple. Now, that makes all the difference in the world. When you read in the gospel accounts and it says that these disciples are following Jesus, you've got the apostles. How many apostles were there? There were 12 apostles, but there were a lot of disciples. A lot of people sat at Jesus' feet and they wanted to learn from him. And they'd be called a disciple. And so if we're going to be people that follow Jesus, Christians, yes, that means we align with Jesus Christ. But disciple means we sit in the classroom of Jesus and we let Jesus teach us. Can you think of anything else that describes us in the New Testament? Priest, We're priests that belong to God. And in so being priests, we offer up spiritual sacrifices. 1 Peter 2... Five through nine talks about the fact that, well, especially verse nine, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We're priests that belong to God. The New Testament also calls us fellow citizens, fellow citizens that belong to God. Ephesians two and verse 19 says we're citizens. Now, we could go on, but we're going to stop there because we do want to get to somebody said air. And that's the primary one I want to deal with tonight. That is right. H.E.I. Or H.I. Okay, this is right. All right. This is what we want to talk about. But let's stop for a minute and ask ourselves this. Why does God use all of these various designations to describe our relationship with him? Why does God say, well, you're Christians, that's right, and children and sheep and servants and disciples and priests and fellow citizens? And you could think of countless others in the New Testament. God has various designations about himself. But for Christians, why does he use all of these terms to describe us as belonging to him? What's the point that we're supposed to get? Different duties at different times. Yes. Yeah, that's right. A priest. What does a priest do in the Old Testament? Sacrifice, conduct the worship, offer up things. When the Bible says you and I are priests, is trying to communicate that we have a responsibility to offer up something to God. We are supposed to be presenting not old, dead sacrifices, but present your body as a living sacrifice. We're to offer up something or sheep. What does a sheep do? It follows. So we're supposed to be following Jesus, being his sheep, those that are being led out by him. All of these deal with different tasks and duties. But why else do we need all of these designations? So we can we can understand what they mean. Yeah. And I think we also need to see that the Christian life is multifaceted. And this is what I mean. Suppose I said, well, I'm a disciple. And I really like to learn about Jesus. I'm I'm just going to be a student. I'm just going to be a person that gets in the book. I just want to learn from Jesus. I really excel in studying and that would be great. But that couldn't be all that you did and say, well, I I know I'm following Jesus because I'm the studious type. Well, that's a part of it. But then there's other parts, too. And the New Testament is trying to give us this holistic picture of our responsibility to Jesus Christ. And the one we're going to talk about tonight is we are heirs with God. And join heirs with Christ. And what does this mean? And so what we're going to do is I want to just walk through several passages tonight that talk about this designation of an heir. What the passages mean in their context. Why And we'll probably do, maybe let's do five passages that discuss this word heir tonight. And then we're just going to look at them. All the places where this appears, the context is not the same. There may be different things going on. And I want us to try to discover why is it being said when it's being said. And then we'll just end with maybe six things about why this matters for us. What does it mean? Now that we know that we're heirs, what does it mean for you and for me? So I'm going to erase this and then we'll just go ahead and write the passages up here. What is an heir, by the way? What is an heir? One who's in line for an. one who's in line for an inheritance. What else? All right. A dependent. What else? The Bible says this about you and me. We might want to figure it out. What is it? It's, an in, it's somebody who receives an inheritance. They're dependent. What else? For what? Yeah, I know. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, why do, they rec- why do they receive something, Lord? Why does an heir not? Don't think spiritual. Just think in general. This isn't a term really limited to biblical matters. In fact, it's just long from everyday life. Why does an heir receive anything? Somebody died, you're part of a family, yes? Roger, what else? Somebody in the family says, hey, you're an heir. So when they die, you get stuff. Can you earn your way to being an heir? You're just born into it. You receive it. And when you get the things that the person has left for you, it's not because you're better than anybody else per se or anything like that. It's just this person loved you enough to leave you these, these things. Russell? You can be you can be all right, let's look at our five passages. The first one, go to Romans chapter eight. Let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter eight Romans eight fifteen through seventeen, and like I said, we'll read these passages, and in each of them they talk about someone being an heir, so we'll read the passage and then we'll make a few comments about it. And then we want to find out why in this specific place does the Bible highlight us as being heirs of God. So Romans 8 and verse 15. Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then what? What do we have in verse 17? Heirs, heirs of God and Join heirs. joint heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified together with him. This is the first time we see this word, it's at least in referring to Christians in the New Testament. It's used in the parables of Jesus three times in the gospels. It's in Matthew twenty one thirty eight, Mark twelve seven, and in Luke twenty fourteen. They use this word to talk about the fact in a parable Jesus says I've sent servants to you and you wouldn't hear. And then lastly, I sent my son and the people said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Jesus tells that parable. But Romans 8 is the first time in the New Testament that the word appears and it's applied to Christians. So from this text, 15 through 18 through 17, what do we know about heirs? Let's start in 15. What do you see? What's true about us as heirs, according to Paul in Romans 8, 15? We receive the spirit. okay, and because we're recipients of the spirit. We are not what we're not slaves. That's right. We're not slaves, but we're sons. That's how Christians ought to see themselves. God says you're not slaves, but sons. Now, is there a sense in which you and I are slaves for Jesus Christ? Is there a sense in which we are? Yes. But here, Paul's saying we're not. Somebody help me. What's the difference? Because in some passages, Paul says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ and we're to be servants. But here, Paul says, you're not a slave. If you're an heir, you're not a slave, but you're a son. What's the difference? Volunteer, okay. Not, it's, it's volunteer, it's not involuntary. What else? Okay. When the New Testament says you and I are slaves of God, it means yes, we are His servants, we do His will. But here Paul is saying in our relationship to God, as far as it relates to our salvation, we don't have this just terrible trepidation that God doesn't want us around, that God wants to crush us. Paul says, you can now come into His presence. You've got a new relationship with God. You're servants, you're not slaves, you're sons. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit in verse 16, That we are the children of God. And we get to cry out. Abba Father. This is the same way Jesus referred to God. When he prayed in Mark 14. In verse 36. Jesus cried out. Abba Father. This is a. It's an Aramaic term, and this just means God, but it's a specific term. Sometimes people say that it may be an affectionate way to say God more like daddy or something like that. That may or may not be true. But the point is, it's a term of affection. The only people that use this term are people that are really in the family. And then he says in 17, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, And fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified together with him. So Romans eight is this victorious passage about no condemnation in Christ and all the things that we have in Jesus. And then Paul says we're heirs. Why do people that are victorious in Christ that Paul says there's no more condemnation? God's for you. Why do we need to be reminded that we are heirs of God? Why in Romans eight? Do people need to be reminded that, hey, you're heirs with God. You you're joint heirs with Christ. You're going to receive something from God. Why would we need to be reminded about that? David. Somebody said I was reading something and this this person said in the book, there's a sense in which every one of us believes in a little bit of the prosperity gospel. You know what the prosperity gospel is. The prosperity gospel says that well, if you're a good person and if you follow God, then what's going to happen for you? You're going to you're going to be rich. You're going to have good things and all. And we say, oh, that's crazy. But this author was saying, no, there's a sense in which we all believe it's true to a certain degree, because when bad things start happening to us, because we're Christians, what do we sometimes say? Why what? Why me? And we know people who've suffered terribly, who have been as faithful to God, as faithful can be. And we sometimes say that's the last person that should be suffering. If anybody should be, it shouldn't be this person. But nobody wants to suffer. I'm just telling you, the New Testament says it's a part of following Jesus. And if you start suffering, you might think, well, maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe I'm not in the family. Maybe I'm not pleasing God. And here Paul just pauses to remind you, you still are an heir. And this suffering is not proof that you're not an heir. In fact, it's the opposite. Paul says, because you're suffering, that's proof you're in the right family. Because if you suffer with them, look at verse 17. If children, then you're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What did Christ go through? Well, look at the rest of the verse. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified together with him. Paul says suffering is one of the marks that you're actually in God's family. And so we are recipients of all of these blessings. But we've got to suffer first. And that's a part of being an heir. And we can't leave that part out. The prosperity gospel says if you were really God's person, everything goes your way. Nothing ever goes bad. You just serve God. You be faithful. Now, the Bible holistically does teach that if you're a faithful child of God and if you live the way God wants you to live, you will escape some of the unnecessary landmines that are out in the world. You won't fall into unnecessary trouble. But some of God's favorite people in the Bible suffered and most times for no reason, no fault of their own. When we go through those times, here's what we need to remember. God has not changed his mind about us. We still are heirs. Everything God promised is still our reality. Nothing's changed. We need to remember that. Now, here's the second passage. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, and this is a little bit longer passage, but kind of carries us through the idea of what Paul's saying here. Galatians 3 And it starts in verse 26, and then it works its way all the way down through chapter 4 and verse 8. Galatians 3.26. And we know this section about baptism, but notice what Paul says. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, Neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ. And if you're Christ, then you are Abraham's seed or offspring. And what's the last part of twenty nine? Heirs, according to the promise. Now, look at chapter four and verse one. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though. He is the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Okay. so Paul says when you're baptized, you put on Christ and when you put on Christ. You become an heir, an heir of what? The first time he uses it is in chapter three and verse twenty nine. You're an heir of all of the promises to Abraham. And then you just ignore the chapter division and go into chapter four. And Paul says, but wait, an heir, as long as he's a child, he's just like a slave in the house. He's just waiting for mom and dad to die or whoever he's waiting to receive these things from. He doesn't have it yet. He doesn't have it at the current moment. But notice verse number four. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a what? Slave, but a what? A son. Now, here's the question. The book of Galatians is about people struggling with their relationship to the old law. False teachers came in and said, if you really want to be somebody, I mean if you you you're you're almost there. You're a Christian, but if you really want God to like you, you've got to be circumcised. And you've got to keep some of the law. Paul's saying, No, you don't. You are not on the outside of God's family. You're in. Somebody says, How in? I mean you're all the way in. You're a son. Now here's the question from Galatians 4 about being an heir. When do we receive the inheritance? We're heirs, right? Christians, we're heirs, yes or yes? Yes, y'all are doing great, right. When do we receive the inheritance, though? And yes, it's a trick question. When do we receive the inheritance? According to Paul, when do you receive your inheritance? When you become a what? A Christian or a son, right? In verse 1, he says, hey, as long as you're a son and you, you can't receive the inheritance yet, you're a slave. But he says, there comes a point when you do receive it. And he says, here, we can cry out, Abba, Father, right now. Our inheritance in Christ is already and not yet. That means there's a sense in which you and I have already received a great deal of it. We tend to think when we die or when Jesus comes again, we're going to go where? When it's all said and done. We're going to be with God forever. We're going to live in heaven with God. And that's when we're going to get everything God has to give us. But the New Testament says you already have some of it. You already have some of it right now. Let me show you go to first John chapter five and let's notice how this is true. That eternal life is what we want in the end. Yes, but the New Testament says we're already heirs because we can cry out Abba father because we can communicate with God in this powerful way. We already are heirs of God. Look at first John chapter five and who wants to read? Can some can I get somebody to read a passage? Stephen, you want to read? OK, great. I didn't see anybody. OK, Stephen, first John five and read verses. Let's just do 11 through 13. First John five, 11 through 13. OK, you see that John says in verse 11, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life in his son. In verse 12, whoever has the son has what? Life. Whoever doesn't have the son doesn't have life. And then verse 13, John says these things we write to you who believe on the name of the son of God, that you may know that you're what we sometimes read it this way, that you may know that you're going to get eternal life. That's not what John said, though. He didn't say, hey, if you believe on the name of the son of God, when it's all said and done, God's going to give you eternal life. That's not that's true. But that's not what John says. John says here, I write to you who believe on the name of the son of God, that you may know what you already have it. You already have it. You have it right now. There's an already not yet aspect to this. There is the already. You already have it. And then there's obviously the grand aspect. We're going to have eternal life in the sense we won't die. But we already have it right now. If we're Christians, we belong to God. We have eternal life. It's not something that we're merely waiting to the end of our lives to get. And so we've got to really step it up and live up to our divine privileges. That's why this matters, because we sometimes live below our privileges. We feel like, well, we just better tiptoe in the house because we don't know if God God's saying you're adopted. You're all the way in. And Paul's saying to the church of Galatia, the churches in that area. Hey, guys, you're heirs. You're no longer in this sort of stepchild. That was the old law. It was a schoolmaster, this sort of guardian that made sure you did what you should and followed the rule. Ro- but now you're in. You're all the way in. You can just go right up to God and call Him Abba Father. You don't need a schoolmaster. You don't need a supervisor or a babysitter. You've got full rights, full privileges. That's right. That's right. Why do we struggle with this? Help me out. Why do we struggle with this type of royal language, this idea that, well, we've already we already have eternal life. God's already given us. We already are heirs. Why do we sometimes struggle, or maybe I'm the only one, y'all already got this down, but why do we struggle to appreciate what the Bible says is already true? Yeah, an understanding of grace. Yeah. It's a gift. Oh, Tom, and then my Yeah, we do struggle. It is a belief thing. We need to ask ourselves, do we really believe what we say we really believe? Because if we do, then when God's saying you're an heir, you're like, well, imagine Christians in the first century. And they're in these little small house churches, maybe 20 people, and they get a letter from Paul. Paul's like, you're royalty. And you're looking around like, don't look real royal to me. We're on the run where they may come in and confiscate our goods. Are you sure we're the most royal people in the New Testament saying, yeah, that's exactly right. And so the same thing can happen today, Mike. Yeah, that's right. Um, Show Who has children in here or grandchildren? Great. And keep your hands up if they've ever made a mistake. The grandparents are going to say no. But of course, of course. Right. Um, But so when your kids messed up, what did you do? Did you kick them out right then and there? You spanked them right then and there the first time. We don't typically do that with our children, right? We want them to do better. We want them to improve. We want to encourage them. That's how God is. Sometimes in our efforts to fight against the false doctrine of being once saved and always saved, we forget to see how much God really loves us and how hard it is, or I would argue it's impossible for anybody to change God's mind about us. It can't be done. We are heirs. And God meant that. And he's not changing. We've got maybe two more passages I want to go to. Go to Titus chapter three. Here's the other one. Titus chapter three. And it's in verse seven. But let's just do five through seven just to get a little bit of the context. All right. So Romans eight, you're suffering, but you're an heir. That doesn't mean God's changed. Galatians three. Don't let anybody come in and tell you, hey, you need more because you're already accepted. You're an heir. Now, Titus chapter three. This is a different context, but it's important for us to appreciate what Paul says about heirs. Now, in chapter three and verse one, he's going to say, I want you to obey authorities. Make sure you follow the rules. Don't speak evil of anybody. Titus chapter three and verse two. Because remember where you came from. Look at verse three. For we ourselves were foolish, disobedient, led astray to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now drop down to verse five. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become what's next. In verse seven, heirs, according to the hope of eternal life, we might become heirs now in Titus chapter three. The context is different. In Titus chapter three, he's saying, listen, you are going to live among ungodly people. Are you with me? Titus three, one and two, he says, submit to government rulers and regulations because, hey, You need to obey them. Don't speak evil of people in Titus chapter 3 and verse 2. And then he says, remember how you were. Now, here's what I want to know. From Titus chapter 3, especially keying in around verse 5, who's the one to be credited with me and with you becoming heirs? Who's to get the credit for that? Who? Everybody. We all got this one. Who, Who gets the credit? God, Jesus Christ. This goes back to what Chuck said about grace, justified by grace. Now, here's what I want to know. Why? Now we get these other ones. I'm suffering. Yeah, but you're still royalty. You're an heir. Am I really loved? Am I really in the family? Do I have to do extra stuff? No, you're an heir. But then in Titus chapter three, he's talking about worldly people that we're going to live around, people that don't follow the New Testament. They're not Christians. And he says, oh, you're an heir. But. He talks about the process of how it happened. Why do we need to be reminded not only that we're heirs, but how it came about? Why does Paul say in Titus 3, 5, not according to works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his own mercy, he saves us by the washing of the regeneration. Why do we need this part of it as far as being heirs in Titus chapter 3? Roger. Get Don't get the big head. Good. Mm-hmm. In other words, we're That's right. Do we sometimes in our culture look down on people that aren't living the way the New Testament says they should? I know we wish everybody followed the New Testament. That's our goal to convert people. But are we sometimes shocked and taken aback by people that behave like like when the world behaves like the world? We're kind of like, oh, I just can't believe that. They're just as wicked and as rotten. Paul saying, don't do that. That's his point here. He's saying, don't do that. Verse three, because you used to be like that. Well, what's the difference, God? By the washing of regeneration, oh, you're an heir, you're in this family, you're in this house, but you didn't behave your way into it, and neither did I. The washing of the regeneration, that's baptism. Same thing as John 3, 5, the new birth. We've got to change the way we view other people. These first two mean, hey, change the way you view yourself. You are royalty, even in the midst of suffering. You are royalty. You are a son. You are an heir, even when other people are trying to say you've got to do more. But this one says what Roger mentioned. Don't get the big head. And have mercy on other people that may not be living up to the standard right now. It doesn't mean we excuse sin. It doesn't mean we applaud unrighteousness. But it does mean that we need to appreciate that what saved us is the very same thing that we hope ultimately will save them. And it's not, it is not mere modification of behavior. That's not Christianity. Christianity isn't moral relativism where we just say, well, if we could just get people to behave a little bit better, then maybe that's not the gospel. Jesus is after something far deeper than that. It's a radical transformation of life. And that happens as we preach the gospel to people, not as we have this sort of this sort of ill factor at things that people do and people think. And we just can't believe that they would think that way. We should be trying to say, OK, verse three, I was once foolish. What changed me? God, who is rich in mercy, Titus three and verse four, and he can do it for them. We've got to get our minds oriented around the fact that we are heirs But it's not because we've earned it. It's not because we're better than anybody. It's because God had mercy. And God wants to do that with everybody. We need to preach against sin. We need to call it out. We need to point it out. But we need to do it the way that God wants us to do it. For the reason that God wants us to do it. Hopefully bringing people to him. So that they can be fellow heirs. The longer you're in the house, right? If we had somebody who... We say, look, we're all a bunch of... We're orphans. And somebody's wealthy enough to adopt us in. I suppose the first... You know, month or two, we'd kind of think, man, I can't believe I'm here. I'm in this house. I never would have thought I'm here. And you kind of scared to go into the fridge and everything. And you're just thinking, I you wake up every day, is this too good to be true? Am I going to be back in the orphanage? And then after five years, you just kind of start thinking, you know, I'm royalty. I'm pretty good. And you go out and you see people and you just, you might start to look down on them. You might start to think you're better. The people in Crete, by the way, Paul talks about it in Titus chapter 1. He says they're evil beasts, they're lazy gluttons, they're bad people, Titus 1, 9 through 12. But he still wants the Christians, as Chuck mentioned, to do good works. And a part of doing good, a part of being the ambassadors for Jesus that he wants us to be in the world is realizing where we live and that people need the mercy of God. And that's hard because we think, oh, I can't believe people would live that way. I can't believe people would do those things. Yeah, that's right. But what people need from us is They need to see, hey, we're merciful people. I thought I saw a hand, but maybe I didn't. All right, any questions or comments on this? All right, good. All right, number four, James chapter 2, and then we'll we'll start bringing this to a close. James chapter 2 and verse 5. In James chapter 2, James is talking about people that are practicing partiality. They're practicing favoritism. And if you notice in James chapter two, he says, don't practice your faith with partiality. That's James two and verse one. And then he says, you know, they're showing favoritism to people because they're wealthy. Now, the Bible doesn't say there's anything wrong with being wealthy. It's not a sin, but it is a sin to treat people differently because they're wealthy. And that's what James is saying. You shouldn't do. Now, look at verse five. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? And then what's the next word? Heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him. And then he talks about how they've dishonored the poor man. If you were a part of a congregation where the church said, OK, now, look, we got visitors and you see some visitors come in. And you see a family come in and, you know, they had to manually roll down the wind roll up the windows to get in. And you see them come. You're like, oh, man, they're about to hit up the pantry. And those old green beans we've been stacking for two years, you know, oh, they're a liability. And then you see another family come in and this person's in a business suit and this and you say, "Oh man, we better go greet them. this person. He might be the next elder. Hey, we might be able hey, they might be an asset." James is saying, "Wait a minute, wait a minute." Both he's not saying to mistreat the rich person because there's nothing wrong with that, but he is saying, "Hold on, wait a minute. Both groups are to be welcomed, not on the merit of what they have or what you think they can contribute." but because they're fellow image bearers of God. And then in James 2 and verse 5, he says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world and rich in faith to be heirs of the kingdom? Why does James remind Christians in that situation? Because in James' situation, what he's saying these congregations were doing, hey, the rich person, you come up front, wherever their seats were. I don't know how their congregation was set up. Seems like a synagogue type setup. He was saying they would bring the wealthy person, the prestigious person to the front and say, Now you sit here. And this other person, they wouldn't even look their way. And if they tried to come up, they'd say, hey, you sit here at the footstool of my feet. Why does James remind them in chapter 2 and verse 5 that they're heirs of the kingdom? And what else does he say to them in verse 5? Notice his language. He does this on purpose. What else does he say? They're heirs and what else? Rich in faith. Why would James remind them of this? James is saying, you don't have to kiss up to anybody. Because they got money or because they're you already rich and you're rich in the way that really matters the most. You've got everything. You're heirs of the kingdom of God and you are rich, too. But you're rich in the type of stuff that will still matter when the world's on fire. And so James is saying you don't have to compromise. Don't play favorites because you're heirs and God wants it to be that way. Now, here's the last one. And this is really two verses. And then we'll draw our thoughts to a close. And we'll just mention these verses. You can look them up later. But First Peter three six, I mean First Peter three seven, and Ephesians three six. These two passages they use the word heir, but they use the word fellow heir. So in Ephesians three six, he says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and members of the same body. And then in First Peter three seven, he's saying, "Hey, husbands, dwell with your wives; the weaker vessel, with knowledge." And then he says, I want you to dwell with her as the weaker vessel, being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers are not hindered. This is this idea here is fellow heirs, your heirs together. And in this passage, it's more about, hey, you're an heir, but there are other people in this family with you. There are other people that are part of this same group and you need to appreciate them as fellow heirs because they're welcomed in by God. All right. So that's pretty much our lesson for tonight on heirs. What I want to do in the time we have left, and I'm going to do this quickly. I want to make maybe five or six just short practical points that we can take away from this about our relationship to God with being heirs. And just turn your Bible to Ephesians. This is where most of them will come from. And I'm just going to make these points. And then if we have any questions or comments, we can do that. Or if not, we'll just quit. So go to Ephesians chapter one and we'll just make these points. And then, like I said, we'll quit the first one. Because you and I are heirs we get everything that God has for us in Christ. That's Ephesians 1, 3, really down through 14. But if you look at verse 5, he uses this. I believe Russell talked about it. You can be adopted into it. Look at Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every or all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And then in verse 5, he says, he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, in Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, There's a lot of stuff. Paul mentions the forgiveness of sins. He talks about us being predestined. We have an inheritance. Ephesians 1 and verse 11. What I want us to appreciate is if we're in Christ, we get everything God has for us. And there's a big sense in which we receive it right now. We already have eternal life. Paul didn't say you're going to get every spiritual blessing. He says you already have it. There isn't one spiritual blessing that exists that you don't have tonight. You say, well, I mess up a lot. Well, one of the spiritual blessings is the forgiveness of sins. Verse 7. You have everything. You're not a stepchild in the kingdom of God. You are. You're right along. Whatever Christ has, this is where this fellow heir language comes in. Whatever Christ has, you have outside of his deity, outside of the deity of Jesus. When you get to heaven, you're going to have everything that's his. What happens when somebody says, hey, you're an heir. I'm going to give you this when they die. What do you get? If somebody said, I'm going to leave you my house, Hiram, when I die, when they die, what do I get? Everybody, what do I get the house? How much of the house? All of it. If I'm an heir, I get all of the house. Right. And if say it was a cousin of mine and their mom said, now, look, when I die, you get the house and Hiram gets the house with you. Y'all are co-heirs together. Who gets the house? When the Bible says your fellow heirs with Jesus, what does that mean? It means Jesus ascended back to heaven. Whatever Jesus has, whatever he's received outside of his deity, we don't lay claim to that. We're not of the faith that said, well, we become gods. No, the Bible doesn't teach that, but it does teach that everything that Jesus has, we receive too. That's how strong this language of royalty is. John says we're priests together with him in the kingdom. Revelation one, five and six. That's the first thing. Now, here's the second one. Go to Ephesians chapter two and notice verses really six and seven. Here's the second one. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's the second takeaway about being heirs. God reigns. God's a what? What did we talk about last night? Starts with a K, ends with ing. He's a king. Y'all are on it. Y'all beat me to it that time. This idea about being heirs means that God reigns, but we reign too. You remember when James and John came to Jesus in Matthew 20 and in Mark 10, and they said, Lord, grant us to sit at your right and on your left in the kingdom. What did Jesus say? He did not say. He didn't say, nobody sits with me. Nobody reigns. He didn't say that. He said, Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with and drink the cup that I drink? It's not mine to give, but it's for those who've been prepared. Here's the question. Who was it prepared for? According to Paul in Ephesians 2, 6, for us. He says we're raised up and we sit with them. We reign with them. It's not just that God reigns. God reigns supreme over everything, but Christians reign with them, too. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, because I'm getting some looks like, are you sure about that? Yeah. Paul says we do reign with him, not as God. But his heirs. Second Timothy two, and notice verse twelve. Well, we can start in eleven. If we die with him, we also live with him. If we endure with him, we also what? What does Second Timothy two twelve say? We reign with Him. When, though? Now we reign with Him. If we deny Him, He'll deny us. If we're faithless, He remains faithful. We reign with Him. It changes your life. If you really believe the New Testament, this is why people died for it. This is why they could kill. Paul said, well, you can just kill me because I'm reigning. If we really believe this, this is what motivates you to stay faithful when you realize everything God has for me. I'm receiving it and I'm going to receive more of it. God reigns, but I reign. And here's the third one from Ephesians chapter three. This is open to everybody. In Ephesians three, notice verse six. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I heard one man describe Christianity this way. He said, I'm an idiot. I've ruined my life. I've got a great future. And anybody can get in on this. That's Christianity. I'm an idiot. I've ruined my life. My future is bright. I've got a great future ahead of me. And anybody can get in on this. That's what Paul says in Ephesians three, six, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. That's a cold way of saying it's not just for Jews. It's for everybody. Everybody can get in on this. That's what God wants us to appreciate about being heirs reigning with him. It's for everybody in the world, not just for people from a certain background or maybe they're just real smart. They know the Bible. They're religious. They lived a good moral life. Anybody can get in on this. Anybody can be an heir and reign with God. That's what he wants for everybody. Now, the last two aren't from Ephesians, but. The fourth one is that the inheritance is as sure as the one who promised it. I know a lady. Well, okay, it's my grandma. I'll just tell y'all. Okay, I know she changes her will all the time. She doesn't live here, but if she ever comes, don't tell her. I told you. All right, but if if she gets mad at somebody, she's just like I'm. Just taking you out of the way. I mean, she changes it all the time. God's not like that. When God says. Oh, I've got something for you. Titus 1 and verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began, I mean, it's guaranteed. You're not going to get up to heaven and be underwhelmed like, oh, this is it? You're going to be blown away. You're going to say, well, these preachers, you're just as sorry as you tried to explain it to me. Why didn't you tell me how glorious it was? You're going to be blown away. Everything you've ever done, everything you've ever sacrificed to stay faithful, you're going to say, if I would have known this, I would have done more. I didn't know it was going to be this glorious. It's as sure as the one who promised it? you can bank on it. You can give your whole life. You can throw your whole life into him. You're not going to be disappointed because you're a fellow heir. You're going to reign supreme with him forever. And the last one is this. You've got to stay in the family. You've got to stay. you've got to be faithful. We have to stay in the family to be heirs. We've got to stick with him. Don't turn away from him because he wants to give it to us. And that's these passages. They're encouraging Christians to stick with it. Don't give up because the inheritance that God has for us. It's sure and guaranteed in the midst of suffering, in the midst of people saying, maybe you're not enough. Maybe you haven't done enough when we think to ourselves, well, maybe we're better than others. No. Remember the humble and lowly way. That's the Christian way. Treat everybody the same. And we're all fellow heirs together. The New Testament says God's a king. That's right. But when you become a Christian. You become royalty, too. You changed. Everything about you changes. Not much changes on the outside, but everything changes on the inside and in heaven. God looks down at us and he says, I've got great things in store for you. And part of them you receive right now. If you just wake up and see a part of it's right now, you already, Stephen read first John five, you already have eternal life. It's a quality of life that we possess and it's an eternal life, a duration of life that we're going to enjoy when this life expires. So we're heirs. We're recipients. And we ought to talk like that. We made that list. Christians, children of God. Oh, all those are great. And I think the Bible uses them all and we should try to use them all. We should diversify our language with how we view ourselves as Christians so we can get the full picture of who God wants us to see ourselves as. All right. Any questions, any comments? All right. Well, you're dismissed. Thanks for a good Bible class tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you.